Me and Brian are here with Tony, Tony Chueri. Tony, do you want to introduce yourself quickly? Tony Schwery, Dana Farber Cancer Institute. That's probably enough, Boston. Tony. That's probably enough. Probably enough. So can I just say okay. one thing, Tony? Yeah. Whenever anybody says your name, they want to say Chuary. Can you can you correct that? Hey, Chuary. I mean, you yeah. you Schuster, Smith, whatever. It's you a very want. Tony was an us. <laughs> it's kind of they butcher his when, name when, all the time. I'm just trying to correct it. All right, go ahead. Tony. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt you. Um, no, no, it's, are, are we taping? Is it? Um, yes, we're good to go. Don't worry, we won't edit this bit out. We'll, 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 <laughs> Tony, give us a. So, we're going to focus pretty much exclusively on the CLEAR trial. It's a really important study, frontline metastatic clear cell renal cancer. Um, there have been previous studies, but there were some unique things about it. Firstly, there was a third arm with Everolimus um, and Levastinib, which, was, uh, which also hit a PFS endpoint. Um, which was in the 0.6s. The bottom line, the top line of the results of the trial were striking in that the PFS and the response rates were 0.39 and 70% respectively for the Len Pen arm, and it hit OS with the 0.66. The tolerability profile of that arm um, looked pretty good, actually, although there were, I think, 69% of patients with dose reductions and 20 milligrams of LEN was the starting dose with the pembrolizumab arm. Uh, we didn't see, um, and we saw a CR rate of 16%, and I want to ask you about that. Let's start with that arm there, and then we can go across to the LEN Everolimus arm in the second part of the discussion, if possible. Um, so, Tony, just tell me a bit about the inception of the trial. Tell me a bit about why the trial is important and what its findings mean. Yeah, no. So CLEAR was uh, based on um, on uh, first introducing lenvatinib into the landscape of renal cell cancer. And as you know, lenvatinib was initially combined with Everolimus in a small randomized phase two study led by uh, Bob Mozer and showed superiority over Everolimus and led to the approval of the combination. Now, lymphatinib single arm, a single agent was, uh, you know, introduced in that small three-arm study and it showed the PFS uh, benefit, but the, really the may, majority of the benefit in terms of PFS and OS was in the uh, combination. So this was approved and became... Tony, can I just, know, before you go any yeah. further there, what is unique about lenvatinib? Why is it different? And of course, you did a study against Everolimus with cabozatinib, and cabozatinib showed a superior disease-free survival um, and also showed a superior overall survival. Um, so when you were, you know, you were involved in the development of both drugs, from the back of the room, do you want to just tell me about the differences between levatinib and cabozatinib from a biology perspective and an efficacy perspective? Yeah, when, when you talk about this tyrosine kinase inhibitor, I mean, the differences is what they hit. Now, they hit on so many things. These are not very, very clean. These are not monoclonal antibody like bevacizumab you know, against VEGF. So, you know, lymvatinib is thought to hit also the FGF receptor, which is involved. There is body of evidence, all preclinical, in mechanism of resistance to VEGF inhibition. Cabozantinib, same thing. We're learning more and more how it works now in retrospect. It's believed also to hit, in addition to the VEGF receptor, the VEGF receptor is the backbone. You know, other... Targets that may be a target on their own in clear cell RCC, and or targets that uh, get uh, amplified 
with VEGF resistance, such as MET and Excel. That's how we try to, as clinicians, simplify it. So they both are, I would say, novel and potentially uh, newer generation of uh, TKI. At the end, you know, they get the name in newer and next class if they're positive, if the trial is positive. <laughs> Otherwise, you know, we go back and we say, oh, we got it wrong. So it's funny how we reinvent, um, you know, the past when it fits us well and when the study are positive. Tony, next question, which is an important one. The dosing of the drug has caused confu- some confusion. It's given at 18. In fact, even in the clear trial, one of the arms was 18, one of the arms was at 20. Yeah. Um, Monty Powell did a randomized phase two study with non inferiority, which I don't think showed conclusive results. Where are you with, and, and in the study, 70% of patients dose reduced uh, from the 20 milligrams or 68 or something? Yeah. Where, where are you with the dosing of this? Yeah, I, I, I stopped much, um, you know, paying significant attention to this because how long Sunitinib was present? I mean, many, many years, I was a fellow. And uh, we, we don't know what's the right dose of sinitinib. It's neither sorafenib, neither any of these. So you have to be able to manage, you know, the toxicities of these TKI that taking continuously. It's not about the dose. It's about exposure, which is different in each individual, independent of their age, weight, gender, or anything. So, so to- there are thoughts how to start them. So with Lemva... We've seen anywhere between 14, 18, and 20. Now, it depends. You probably can combine better because of the absence of uh, side effects that could be similar, but, you know, with everolimus or with pembrolizumab. So this is the reason why there is dose reduction. Look with Cabo, the dose reduction that happened to a degree that Checkmate 90R started at 40 milligrams. So it does not concern me as much when I see efficacy, as long as the time on therapy and the physicians and the nursing staff know how to manage those um, interruption and reductions. So you would generally advocate for, you know, for using this combo starting at the 20 as the trial did, but obviously dialing down as needed. That's that has been, that, that has been uh, in front line, the way how yeah. I do it. Someone very, very old who I think may have also, I find the reason to find, to do it at a a lower dose, but most of the sure. time, I'm one of those few people that start at the way higher dose. However, yeah. I would tell you, Brian, that if I want to give, let's say, cabozentinib later, later line, and someone did struggle on VEGF TKI, I may start at uh, yeah at fourth. Yeah, but the there thing. are two school of thoughts. Two school of thoughts. Um, Tony, so the next point really is, do you want to just give me the effort? I've, I've explained the efficacy signal, so you don't necessarily need to go through them in detail. What's your perception of the efficacy and how important do you see the four endpoints of CR, which was not pre-specified as a, with alpha spend, um, response rate, uh, PFS and OS? I think for people that don't do kidney cancer for a living, meaning the vast, vast, majority of oncologists uh, by far. And even if you are a GU oncologist, you're most likely to do kidney and something else in GU. So um, people, when they look at an abstract or thing, the first thing they look up in result are the efficacy. And, and this, is, this is a fact. So they look at PFS, response rate, they see if the trial met the OS, etc. So are, these are remain the most important now, you dig more into the baseline characteristic, into the details of the study, and then you can explain 
perhaps why results are different among um, different studies that were not compared head to head. Brian, you go. Well, I was going to say, I think the, the question you're asking, Tom, was is, is one more important? Or which one is most valued? Is that was that the question? Yeah, I mean the question. For, for, obviously, we got a twenty-four month PFS um, yeah. with um, which does you know, the hazard ratio of zero point three nine, which just it does seem you know people. Are, I'm not too. I, this has only been out for two days, but about three or four people have come up to me and said, "Look, this is a bit different. This is really this is." Yeah. And then the question is, is it different? Yes or no? And if it is different, why is it different? So, Tom, the first thing in these first-line studies, people want to see an OS. They want to see a p-value that is significant. Because if you're not going to see an OS in this game, you better have something different, such as a CR rate of 20% or more, or an explanation why OS didn't happen. So before Clear were announced, you know, we were all thinking that this um, study will be dead if you do not have an OS signal. And there was an OS benefit. Tony, then they start looking. One of the questions on the OS, let's stick on that. I want to ask this question. It came up a few times too. Um, the OS curve looks a bit bendy. So you look at the Ipinevo curves, they go apart, they stay apart. The landmark looks great. The OS landmark for the um, Len Pen doesn't look the same. Um, and do you accept that? Or do you think it's to do with censoring or they'll stay apart? But, or is it yeah, to do with I, subsequent therapy? What's the story there? Look, you know, I, I try not to be too smart here. I'm not a statistician. I'm not a basic scientist. You're on the right when One of my closest, when, when, when you, one of my, uh, you know, very close colleagues and friend, Bill Kalin, tries himself not to be too smart explaining how things synergize. And I know how much he loves biomarker, Tom. Uh, I, I try not to. I'm looking, actually, I pulled out the article and I'm looking at the curves now. Yeah, there are other combinations where they did separate, but you know very well when you look at the KM curve and the hazard ratio, you look at the whole thing. I think it's still a bit unfair to compare the studies that just were released now to something like Nevo IPI. But I am, I am not going to take that in consideration that these curves just started you know, going together, that means this is... Uh, okay, fine. Because so our counterpart... So let's move on to PFS and response rate. Is there something unusual in those two? Because, you, you know, subsequent therapies, all sorts of things can affect um, the time the trial was taken. Um, all sorts of things can, can affect um, the OS curves. But in this trial, we've got a PFS, we've got a, a medium PFS for sedative at 9.1, which was bang on what was happened in Compars. And we've got the other arm with 24 months and 0.39 as a hazard ratio. And it's quite hard, you know, for other things. To, the reason we like PFS is it's relatively pure. Do you think that's, a, is that the most striking feature of any of the trials that we have to date? Or again, is this just part of a statistical noise? The, the 24 months PFS is not part of the statistics. This is the largest, the longest we've seen. The CR are the highest. Now, in part, this could be explained by, by many things, including that a clear um, baseline characteristic, if you look at the IMDC favorable and poor, they're more look like Keynote 426, less than mm-hmm. uh, Axia Vilumab or Checkmate 90R. Now, the question for myself, is this going to increase the PFS from 15, 16 months with Keynote 426 and 90R to 24 months? Is this going to increase the CR from 8, 9% to 16%? 
I, I don't know, uh, you know, are the subsequent and, and, and just and just just two things about the subsequent anti-cancer medication. You, we both, the three of us, been involved in renal cell, and we know how hard that, how much immortal time bias this is. We know a lot of folks that even have get off trial because of toxicity and get consolidative, you know, systemic, uh, not systemic treatment, local treatment, you know, how to count these. As long, and this is real time, sometimes after the patient come off treatment, even if they're followed, this is real world life of what happened to them. So uh, I think it's a fair game to say that the clear study, while had probably a bit more favorable, and I'm not saying IMDC favorable, I'm just favorable in general, I don't think it can explain that high CR and that prolonged. I agree. Well, I, I agree. I, I, you go, Ron. You go. I was going to say, and I think what makes it more impressive is that only 74% had prior nephrectomy, right? So in a quarter of patients without prior nephrectomy, it's really hard, almost impossible to show a CR in those folks and even showing right. response. Right. So it wasn't, wasn't it quite as low as 90R, but it was, that's pretty low. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And that's the post-Carmina. And the other thing, Brian, and Tom, is I look now that it's way too complicated to look and compare. I look at the control arm of sunitinib. I do too. And the sunitinib arm, why did I did a bit better than the study you ran with Atizobev, Brian, and a bit better than Checkmate 90R. It was only one month, where Keynote 426 was 11.1 months. Mm -hmm. So actually, clear is between 90R and between in term of, uh, you know, control arm and between keynote four to six. So you have to give credit. And I can't wait for another, <laughs> another update of this state. Um, so Tony, the last question on this, for two more. Number one is the CR rate. Now people, I haven't been a great advocate of CR. And what I've said is comparing at 8% with 11%. And I felt it was more of a commercial discussion. And, um, um, and, and, you know, and, and now we've got a CR of 16%. I've always said in, you know, Albert, to various meetings, you know, if we hit 25%, that's a big deal. And that would change things. Is 16% different from 10% that's different from 8%? Or is it, you know, is, is this different? Or is it just, is it lucky? Because um, it's a relatively small number. Should we pay any attention to this at all? I, I would pay attention to this and how it's going to be in the future, because sometimes it goes up with Keynote 426, it went up. Mm -hmm. So if this goes up to 20%, I mean, yes, it's not the same set of radiologists, but these people that measure these on independent center review, this is, you know, their business model. That's what they do. So you have to believe it. And I would say here, and that comes from Brian data, actually, in Keynote 426, with Betsy presented that, that hopefully this is just a, you know, reflection of this deep responders. I wish today a CR overnight by resist is changed to 80% or more. And I would bet you that the, 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 these patient will do extremely well like CR and these numbers of 16 will go to 22 and the 8 9 percent with 90 R and 426 will go to 12 13 percent I do think this is very important Brian, but, think, but it's more I would say it's more important with Nivo Ipi because then you're on maintenance nivolumab and you, yeah. you're done every I don't know four to eight weeks you're still dealing with TKI that unlikely to be stopped. And that is a problem. So Brian, I have a question know, about that, but Tom, I just wanted to comment. I mean, I think the, the 24 months, the 71% and the 16% in this study, whatever you would have 
said was, you know, significantly different numbers heading into it. To me, this, I think it, at least one of those meets that threshold. 24 months definitely meets that threshold for me. You know, 71 and 16, I think, I think probably do. I mean, I think, you know, we could argue the stats of it and the favorable risk and blah, blah, blah. But to me, it's, you know, it's outside statistical noise, in my opinion. Yeah. Okay. So we, so as a group, we agree that there is something that looks attractive about this combination, which has hit a number of efficacy endpoints, which we would underline. We're not, we're going to make comparisons between the different trials right now. We can have a discussion another time, but so this looks really active. Let's talk about toxicity. Um, maybe Brian, you want to start with this. So you've been obviously involved with the axi Pembro combination and we've talked about toxicity profiles within that in great detail. And eventually we even wrote a paper on it, which I don't know if that's been published yet, but it hasn't. <laughs> it hasn't. Oh my goodness. Okay. So tell me a little bit about what you thought about the toxicity profile, because um, as I said before, we did have quite a high discontinuation rate. In my mind, I always think discontinuation as being a marker of toxicity. Um, but we also uh, saw a high, a high, not sorry, not discontinuation, dose reduction rate of yeah. about 68%. What's your feeling of, the, of those um, our tornado curves? I mean, I didn't think it was uh, an unacceptable toxicity signal. I mean, I think, and to Tony's point earlier, it was sort of like the, the cabozantinib-based combos where you're starting at a dose that's probably too high for most people, I guess too high for 70%. But then they, they settled down and the duration of treatment was 17 months. So clearly, you know, patients were able to tolerate the combo, generally speaking, for, for quite a bit. So I didn't think there was anything that was unusual. It was dominantly TKI driven. Um, I haven't read the paper yet, but even in the, the slides, there wasn't a lot of immune mediated toxicity. So, you know, these TKI combos are, are dominated by that toxicity. In Bob's presentation, he talked about the lack of transaminitis being relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, do you th- and, and it was we've looked at that detail. Um, we did that together a couple of days ago or a day ago, whenever it was. And um, and what do you think about what do you think about that? Yeah, I think it's notable. I mean, I think you could line up toxicities for all these IOTK regimens and regimen A might have, be more favorable on these three and regimen B on these four or something. So I think tolerability, not having given this particular regimen, but, you know, I, I don't know that there's huge differences from a tolerability standpoint, with the exception of the Cabo and Lend, again, started a higher dose. So you kind of, you're overdosing people and you need to settle down into that lower dose range for I mean, long-term I've seen, tolerability. I've seen transaminitis quite frequently with Cabo Nevo and with Axi Pembro. Is that your experience as well? And do you think that in the real world, we're going to see transaminitis with Len Pen? You're asking me or Tony? Tony. Yeah, I, I don't know, uh, Tom, like the three of us are kidney experts. I don't know what to answer. But, but one thing, let me take this, is that if you look at the table, Tom, uh, with LENPAM, what folks have reported is mostly when it was more than 25%, um, you know, of these, um, you know, toxic side effects. So if the ASTALT did not make it to that, so it wasn't reported. But there is no doubt that th- there was some safety. And if you look at... Um, you know, I don't know how much you guys can trust AST and ALT elevation and how people reported them when they're treatment related. I'll tell you what the best exercise in this. Look at sunitinib arm and look at grade 3-4 toxicity with AST, ALT in each of the randomized phase 3 studies or phase 2. Look at Cabo Sun even. Look at all of them and they can vary by up to 50-60%. And this is sunitinib. So I put a lot of emphasis on the bilirubin because that's what can 
you know, lead to death. I put a lot of emphasis on ASTLT more than 10 times. And I put emphasis on the treatment discontinuation of both drugs. And with Len Pembro, I'm trying to pull it here. I think it's a bit higher than uh, 90R or Pembro in terms of treatment uh, discontinuation in general of both drugs. I think, I can't remember, I think it's about 9%, Tony, but I'll, I can check that too. So, um, um, in the past, I got involved in a debate about sunitinib and pazopinib, and, I, and I, my feeling was it became over-commercialized. And, I, and with hindsight, it wasn't my, my finest hour, um, that, along, <laughs> that, that along with an episode that took place in, a, in Ramsey's Bar in Spain back in the day. <laughs> Uh, both which I've apologized. Where, where, where is this going? Uh, so, I'm not sure. Tony, the question I want to ask you right now is, do you think that this, because one of my fears is that this discussion is going to become quite commercialized and polarized and people are going to find yes. themselves in yes. in the Len Pen tent or in the Cabo uh, Nevo tent and the Axie Pembro tent. And I think absolutely. there are more similarities and differences between these three. And someone asked me absolutely. the other day, he said, Tom, well, you've got to make your mind up. Which one is it? And my, my, my comeback to that was actually, I think all three look quite similar. And I'm not sure that I want to jump in and say, do you think that's a reasonable position? Or do you think we have to come off the fence and say, this is the best one. This is what I'm going to give my patients. Yeah. No, uh, no, uh, Tom, I think we have a duty as experts, Kidnik, the three of us and, and many other like Bob Mozer, Bernard and others to just say, you know, we, we just, it's not like dodging the question, but this is not, I remember that mean neighbor like 20, 25, 30 years ago when I was a kid. And, you know, I, I don't know what, what it was, a Christmas or something. And, and look at me. It's like, tell me, tell me, Tony, do you like your mom or your dad more? And I'm like, <laughs> what the heck is this question? So I think it's going to be over commercialized. We need to stick to the data. You have studies that showed OS benefit. There are differences in the baseline characteristic. Brian said it. How can you have CRs and PRs well when you have one third of the patient on 90R and maybe, you know, 25% on those with uh, clear with kidney in place, on and on and on. So we need to just rise above this and just continue to focus on our research with biomarker, with triplet. We need to talk about triplet. <laughs> um, important and question. Tom, I think we're running out of time. Of, if you want to talk about the Lenin. Important question, Tony, before we move on. How old was your neighbor? Uh, but very old, and I hope you don't have a neighbor like him. Um, now, listen, Tony, I've got um, so we're agreed that we need to push back on that a little bit and maybe focus on how we give the drugs, how we get access to the drugs, the best way of managing toxicity, which I think is an important message for all three combinations. We do need to move on, Brian. You're absolutely right. Um, the Len um, Everolimus arm, um, you're combining two drugs together. Um, which is going to be associated with more complexity than giving a drug like cabazatinib. The, there was a hazard ratio advantage. I think it was 0.65. There was a response rate increase, a bounce of about 10%. The hazard ratio for OS was 1.14. One of the first question I've been asked, Tony, is, is that 1.14 worse than one? Is, that, is there something going on? I mean, some people have said to me, you know, you're giving the Everolimus. Does that mean the immune therapy is less active afterwards? Or is that just part of statistical noise showing the OS is essentially the same? Yeah, it's potentially the three. I think you need to look at it clinically, statistically and biologically. So uh, clinically first, I mean, is 
the patient on the len everolimus are uh, getting, for whatever reason, less immune checkpoint inhibitor? Are they too sick, et cetera? And, you know, they need to have immune checkpoint inhibitor. So that could explain the OS. The second thing is statistically, I mean, maybe you didn't have enough follow-up. So I want to see the follow-up to see if this hazard ratio comes less than one. Mm -hmm. We have example in trials. And the third one is the biologically, not starting by IO and actually not starting by a TOR inhibitor and later on receiving an immune checkpoint inhibitor with all the effect that the TOR inhibitor can have on the immune system. If you look at the literature, a lot of them are more negative than positive. Could that have impacted the response to subsequent immune checkpoint inhibitor and led to this hazard ratio that is disappointing over than uh, more than one? So I think this is my answer, but I wouldn't be surprised if Len Everolimus doesn't get FDA approval frontline. Right, so, ask you the same question. You're asking me? Yeah, what do you think about the Len, <laughs> Len Everolimus arm and the three efficacy parameters? And where does, do you think it should be an, a frontline option? Or if not, where would you use it? Yeah, well, that's what I was just going to ask, Tony. I mean, it, it clearly establishes the activity. I'm not sure about survival. I think it's worrisome, but maybe too early to make you know, a final decision. You know, I guess it does give you a nice non-immune-based combo in the front line if, and if a patient can't get immune therapy. You know, I strongly believe everyone should get immune therapy up front. But if a patient can for whatever contraindication, then it does give you, you know, a nice, uh, a nice combination with, with sort of those targeted therapy benefits. Now, does it, does it prevent, you know, treatment down the road, et cetera? You know, maybe with that survival signal. But I will probably still use it in a refractory setting. I don't use a lot of it for tox reasons. But... I think I would still use it in a refractory setting. But these data are, it's good because there was only that small randomized phase too, right? So it is nice to have a large data set. Right. The right. ESMO right. guidelines committee meeting tomorrow morning at eight. What advice should I give them about this combination? Where do you think it should appear in the guidelines? Are you going to listen to us for the advice or are you just asking us like this? I'm, just, I'm, asking, you you a, I'm asking you a difficult question. <laughs> I'm asking you a difficult question. I, I would, I let, would me, let me construct the question better. Let me construct the question, question better. So what will happen is we'll meet in the morning, we'll have a conversation. I'll ramble a little bit and then I'll be ignored because <laughs> that's what always happens at these meetings. Yeah. Um, my Zoom link will be about well, it. Yeah. Um, and uh, I won't be able to share my screen. <laughs> and, and then what will happen is we'll put it to the group. We'll say, do we think it should get a frontline license in the same way? Sorry, a, a, a approval in the same way we currently have cabazatinib and even pazopinib and sinitinib as alternatives, because in bits of Europe, you can't get access to immune therapy. I'm guessing Everolimus would be cheap, relatively cheap, although mm -hmm. money shouldn't come into this. So the question is, do you think it should be on the same level as other drugs, other VEGF TKIs in the frontline setting? And the second question is, at the moment, it's second line, third line is an open field. And we don't have any data. And this looks like this combination is at least as good or, or from from a PFS perspective, better than um, than sunitinib. So should it go in the same category as the other drugs and be allowed to be used, you know, with robust data in IO refractory disease? Mm. I mean, if you ask me this, I would uh, I, I would say in the second line setting, uh, post IO post TKI, yes, there is you know there is the randomized studies, small one. But in the front line, I, I want to see an OS hazard ratio uh, less than one. What if that signal is real on follow-up and you have six more months, nine more months data cutoff and it's 1.3? I mean, you never know. What about you, Bron? 
I, I think it should be an option frontline, you know, noting what Tony just said, that obviously with further follow-up, I mean, it's kind of what happened to, you know, Tavozina versus Serafinib right in Tivo one. It was above one, and then it went in the wrong direction. So if that happens, then I think you'd, you'd have to pull that recommendation back. We'd ro- but if you, I'd much and, rather not pull recommendation back. Back, I'd much rather do it when we're comfortable to do it, and so that's. But I so then you have to wait. Yeah, then you have. Well, then to we wait. have to wait. Then you have to wait. Different stuff. Okay, listen, so, Tony, we're, we we're actually over one. Listen, w- w- one second, yeah. Tom. Do you realize what's today? I have to say this for Brian because you know you've been torturing the poor guy. <laughs> uh, today is Valentine's Day, and Sue asked me. Thankfully, maybe we have a pandemic. Uh, so that you're not spending, again, Asko to you and Valentine with Tom Powers and David <laughs> McDermott on a CME program. She said that in the morning. I said, wait, wait, wait. At 10 in the morning, I have a call with Tom Powers. And just she rolled her eyes. So, uh, Tom, you're part of my Valentine's Day for the past five years. Well, I can't so wait. We can continue that tradition. I've got fly over Boston for the next one. Next year, I'll be in Boston with you. Sue will be delighted. Thank you. Delighted. Always a pleasure. Love that podcast. See you soon. Bye-bye. Take care.